like never before. We're waging war. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 18, and it says in verse 4, it says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Literally, it says because of offenses. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom the offense comes. In this context here, the the term offense is talking about those things that cause people to sin, to walk apart from God. We live in a culture now that is addicted to offense. Offense. Now, of course, this is the offense of personally being offended. You know, I'm offended or you offended me, sir. It's got that tone of indignation in it. So I read an article about comics and how uh, comedy in America is dying. It's a dying trade because everybody's offended about something. And it just seems such a shame. And this is the world of identity politics in which we live in these days. Everybody's offended about something. There's a sense of self-righteousness and self-promotion and self-pity. And it's on steroids. It's not the live and let live generation that many of us grew up in. There's this whole idea of this term. I've talked about it in fellowship before. It's called virtue signaling, right? Virtue signaling. The more offended a person indicates, the more sincere their beliefs, the deepness of their feelings. Being offended has become a twisted form of virtue. From this point of view, it's assumed that those who are not properly offended aren't woke enough. They aren't committed enough to the cause. In the King James, uh, we were looking at this during study night. In talking about love, in the King James, it reads, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemly. It seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Is not easily provoked. So love is not easily offended. We read further that it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today is offense, how to deal with offense. When a person who is, or when a person is quick to uh, offense, they tend to be uh, quick to jump to conclusions. They tend to be quick to accuse. They tend to be intolerant. They tend to be unreasonable. These are all aspects of somebody who is easily offended. They tend to have a shallow, reactionary personality. And we see that a lot in our culture today. We've talked about it here in Fellowship before, cancel culture. Somebody gets offended, they go online, they have an online campaign, and they get something canceled because it offended them. And a lot of times, you know, companies are, they just don't want to deal with the headache. They don't want to deal with the lawsuits. So they just settle out and do what these people are telling them to do, which just empowers them. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It says, there is not a righteous man on earth who always, that that's kind of understood here, who always does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart 
that many times you yourself have cursed others. I thought this was a great verse. Do not pay attention to everything people say. I think sometimes we place way too much importance on other people's opinions, don't we? We place way too much importance on it. We need to learn to place the appropriate emphasis on the right speech and disregard the wrong speech. We we take offense too quickly. There's a term that I like to use. It's thin skin versus thick skin. We are in our culture, I should say, our culture is very thin skinned and we need to have thicker skin. We are overly quick as a culture to take offense, to become offended about things. You know, I was raised in a military household and we used to move a lot. We'd move every three years. And, you know, being a new the new kid on the block, I typically had to get into a few fights in order to kind of define my ground. And so I I developed along the way somewhere kind of a thin skin and short fuse. I developed a habit of actually looking for the offense that I knew was coming. And when I heard the offense, then it was it was time to fight and fight. I did. And I was constantly fighting as a kid. I'm amazed that the kids today, they go through their whole childhood and their adolescence without a fight. I think I've been in probably 30 fights. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> That's how I grew up fighting, fighting with people. And, that, you know, in retrospect, when I look back on it, I realized that nobody actually taught me how to cope with offense. You know, when it says here that do not pay attention to every word people say, I paid attention to every word people say, people said, because I was afraid one of them would be an insult. I thought that was kind of interesting. Turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, and look at verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. Those are some words right there. How many times have we all behaved foolishly in a disagreement because we are busy trying to justify ourselves when it would have been wiser to maybe get a little more clarity? Instead, we go rushing headlong in armed with nothing but indignation and short on facts. We should have maybe even conceded the point, recognizing that it's okay to be wrong sometimes, right? But we're so busy trying to justify ourselves that we could never admit that we were wrong. Or even walking away, recognizing that the discussion was headed down to an unprofitable conclusion and that it would be better to walk away. See, nobody ever taught me these things. Go to Second Samuel chapter 16. Look at verse 5. It says, as King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guards were on David's right and left. So you get this picture where David is riding his horse, and he's got his special guards surrounding him, and this guy comes running out just yelling insults and curses and throwing rocks 
at David. I mean, this guy was something else. It says, as he cursed, Shammai said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. I mean, can you imagine this? No one spoke to the king this way. It says, the Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. So the question is, was he right? No, but he wasn't entirely wrong either. There was certain things that he was saying that was right. And, you know, David is is writing and he's burdened with Absalom. He's burdened with Absalom. It says in verse 9, Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What do you and I have in common? You sons of Zeruah, if he is cursing because of the because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abisha and all his officials, my son, who is my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me for the good. Repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. I think that's pretty interesting record. Was the Lord commanding this man to curse him? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. But I do think that David was handing this thing over to the Lord, wasn't he? He was being cursed by this man. He could have taken offense. He could have had this man's head chopped off, but he gave it to the Lord. I thought about this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, which says, The power men possess to annoy me, I give them by a weak curiosity. No man can come near me but through my act. In other words, when we get offended, it's because we've allowed ourselves to get offended. Do you understand that? That's an important point here in this teaching. If you allow your or if you get offended, it's because you allowed yourself to get offended. Go to first Peter chapter four. First Peter four. And you know when I teach this, it's not because I'm teaching it from a position of being perfect. Uh I would probably claim that there's people in this fellowship who do this better than I do. But it is something that the word teaches and it's something that I'm striving for. And uh it's important that we just be honest about it. As I said before, I've always had a short fuse growing up, and it has been one of my uh, lesser attractive personality traits. So this is what the word teaches on this subject, and this is what we're striving for. First Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's something. In psychology, we hear them often talk about coping mechanisms. A coping mechanism is a strategy a person uses in the face of stress or trauma to help manage painful or difficult emotions. Coping mechanisms can help people adjust to stressful events while helping them maintain their emotional well-being. All right. This is a Christian coping mechanism. <laughs> it starts off by saying, do not be surprised at the, at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. You're a Christian. 
It's part of the program. Mm -hmm. It's part of the program. When you became a Christian, you signed up for suffering. Now, that sounds very odd, doesn't it? You signed up for suffering. Yeah, I'm going to sign on the dotted line for some more suffering because I can't get enough. No, what we signed up for is the fact that we we as Christians stand with our Lord and our Lord was persecuted. And if we are his servants, guess what? We'll be persecuted, too. That's just what comes with the program. It's part of our calling. Jesus himself had to endure and suffer reproach and persecution. It says, but rejoice here that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed with his glory or when his glory is revealed. See, our coping mechanism, one of our coping mechanisms, is recognizing the inevitability of the situation. If I'm a servant of Christ, I'm going to have to deal with certain things. I can't allow myself to become offended all the time. I've got to learn how to deal with them in a proper, healthy way. Another part of our coping mechanism is that we look to the hope. We look to the hope. In Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, because he looked on to the joy that was set before him. Isn't that something? So when we're dealing with things that are trying to tempt us to become offended, we need to be dealing, we need to recognize that part of the program, and I've got a hope. I've got a wonderful hope that I look forward to. That's something. Go to John chapter 15, John 15. See, this isn't Pollyanna Christianity. If you're speaking the truth, you will get persecuted. That's just the way it is. John chapter 15, look at verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world, what? Hates you. It hates you. Remember, the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Isn't that something? So what can I get from this? Well, the most important thing I think is it's not personal. It's not personal. They hate you because of your Lord, and they hate him because of God, right? Last night, I was watching the movie with uh, my wife and my son, Caleb, Winter Soldier. And there's a scene where they're all, where Captain America is in the elevator, and all these people start piling into the elevator, and it's filled. There must have been 15 guys in this elevator, and they're, they're all big, hulky guys. And uh, so Captain America's standing there, and he can tell that they're all, you know, recon type guys and so they're about to they're about to start the elevator and he goes before we get started does anybody want to get off <laughs> and then they have this giant fight right in the middle of the elevator and he's just kicking everybody's tail just beating everybody up and uh <laughs> and then at the end there's just one guy left standing and he's got this electronic pro uh, probe and he says cap this isn't personal and he, he sticks Captain America with it, and Captain America throws him against the roof, and he falls down. And they show Captain America standing there with all these bodies around him. Captain America goes, well, it sure seems personal. <laughs> I loved it. See, we're in a spiritual contest here. Satan hates us because he hates Jesus Christ. It certainly seems personal, but it's not. 
it's not personal. I saw this quote online. It says, because this world is unknowingly following Satan, the present ruler of this world, those who choose to live differently by following Christ will oftentimes be despised and punished for their choice. Christ warned his followers that since the world hated him, it would hate them also. You see, the point here is, is that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We have a spiritual battle going on. And because it's a spiritual battle, we've got to recognize in our coping mechanism, otherwise known as just the truth, that this isn't personal. It's a spiritual attack. We need to learn how to counter spiritually. Go to John chapter 16 and look in verse 1. It says, all this I have told you that ye will not go astray, or in the King James, that you should not be offended, that you should not be offended, right? No surprises here. I think it's important that we state the case. You know, the prosperity doctrine is so busy trying to tell people that, well, you know, God's going to bless you and he's going to bless you with all these good things. And, you know, your life is going to become wonderful and you're going to live in a big house with a nice car if you just give so much money. And that's just that is so wrong headed. That is not what the scriptures talk about. Go to Second Timothy, chapter three, Second Timothy three. These are some dark days that we live in. We need to understand what we're dealing with here. And, you know, we, I've been talking to my wife all week about people who are chronically immature and pro- chronically weak in the faith. And my admonition would be it's time to grow up for all of us. It's time for us to grow up. Second Timothy. And I don't mean that when I say that. I don't mean that to sound accusative, but it should be an admonishment. It's time for us to grow up. Second Timothy three. Look in verse one. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without God, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having the form of godliness but denying its power, having or have nothing to do with them. And we're watching this unfold around us before our eyes. I'll tell you, over the past year, I would say, I've certainly been awakened to the reality of some of my countrymen, that they aren't good people, that some of them are openly hostile to my God and Christ. And this makes them very much potentially hostile to us. So we need to understand the situation. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. So what is the role of the Christian in this whole thing? When you have people who are openly hostile to God, openly hostile to Christ, and openly hostile to the Christian religion, what does the Christian do? Does he fight back? Well, Matthew chapter 5, look in verse 9. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Isn't that beautiful? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think that's amazing, isn't it? I think about Hebrews chapter 12, 
where it says that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You know, you read all the stories in the Old Testament and in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the prophets who came before us and how they many of them died horrible deaths because of the stand that they took for God. So it's all, you know, putting things into perspective. You know, I have somebody at the office say something nasty to me and I'm in fits for three days about it. We just can't listen to what other people say sometimes, right? We can't worry about these things. I did a teaching several weeks ago and somebody said something not kind about it and it bothered me too much. And so part of this teaching was recognizing the perspective that I needed to have, that we can count on the fact that if we're going to teach something true and righteous, we're going to get pushed back from a lying world. Welcome to the party. You know, I, I think about it when we consider our brethren who are, you know, like our Sudanese Christian brethren who are in Sudan, who are being murdered for their faith. We just, I mean, we have nothing to be offended for. We need courage. We need resolution. We need fortitude. We need to be able to stand up under adversity. And every time you get insulted or slighted, you can look at it as a practice session. All right. For bigger insults to come. Matthew chapter 26. You know, I think about this poem that my wife has been teaching my son. He can recite it thoroughly. It's uh, the, the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. And there's a line in there that says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, then you will be a man, my son. And that's classic. That's perfect. Matthew chapter 26. Look in verse 51. It says, with that, one of Jesus's companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword, right? We don't go looking for fights. Of course, there's a time to use a sword in self-defense. He's talking about using the sword in an offensive manner. And it's the same with the sword of your tongue, right? Your, you know, the, your, the things that you say, you know, the person who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. When somebody insults you, when somebody comes after you verbally, there's payback. There's consequences for that. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Look at verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not be conceited. You know, conceit is of the flesh. Whenever I'm drawing distinctions with my brothers and sisters in Christ based on you know, economic status or cultural status. I'm it's of the flesh. Now, it's not so austere in this country as it is, say, in India, where they have this hardcore caste system. But the point is, is that in the body of Christ, we are we have that equality, right, that the spirit of God is makes us equal and the recognition of the uselessness of the flesh makes us equal. It doesn't matter where you come from, right? That your brother and sisters are beloved of God and therefore they should be beloved of you also. It goes on in verse 17, it says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
And then it says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. I don't really like that translation. It sounds like you're, you know, sycophantic. You're running around trying to please everybody. That's not at all what it's saying. Uh, another version reads, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And the point here is to deliberately live honorably, right? Knowing that others are watching you. To be honorable, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Isn't that great? Live at peace with everyone. And you can't live at peace with everyone unless you're cultivating peaceful thoughts in your mind and your heart. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath as it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Ouch. Now, many of us were raised in the word to understand this from a point of view taught by Bishop Talai. Uh, he was an Indian, you know, from India, and he taught the idea that this, this referred to uh, this practice that they have where you have a fire burning all the time and in the morning a young boy would take the coals out of the hot fire and put them in a ceramic container and carry it on his head and walk from house to house giving each person a coal so that they could start their fire. And having this container on his head, it warmed him, right? Mm -hmm. And that is an explanation. I don't think it's the explanation, uh, first of all, because there's no historical evidence that this ever took place in ancient Middle East. Okay. This some, this is something they do in present India or did during Bishop Pali's life, but there's nothing that, uh, indicates that this was a biblical custom. Second of all, uh, Romans is written to Romans and this was not a practice in Roman culture. So the idea here is, is that in the Roman culture, it was a very honor, shame type culture. You are either doing the right thing or you were ashamed of doing the wrong thing. Does that make sense to everybody? So this idea of putting the coals on people's heads has to do with that. Look at verse 21. It says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so that's the point being made here. All right. So you have to see this in light of that, that by putting coals on somebody's head, you are admonishing the offender that by being kind to somebody, when they are being offensive to you, you are shaming them in a sense. And I think that's pretty interesting. You got to keep in mind here that the expectation of the offender is to do what? Offend. In other words, your offense is the offender's payoff, right? He's done his job. If you take the bait, your offense validates him. And he walks away feeling like he showed you. You had it coming to him or coming to you. But instead of being offended, you show kindness to the offender. You are actually accomplishing two things. First, you are depriving the offender of his payoff by not being overcome with evil. The offender's looking to you. He's looking to see you offended and you're kind back. <laughs> 
You talk about taking the winds out of somebody's sails. That's exactly what's happening. The second thing is that you are admonishing the offender and thus overcoming evil with good. Do you see that? That by doing the right thing, by responding in kindness, you are showing your offender the wrongness of his offense. And this is important for us to keep in mind, right? Now, you're not you're not doing it to manipulate him. You are genuinely being kind to him. But by that sincere kindness, you are revealing to him his offensiveness, his true offensiveness. See, I was thinking about it that a lot of times we try to cure anger problems by telling people don't be angry. But the problem isn't anger as much as it's not being able to cope with offense, that you don't know how to deal with the offenses when they come. We take the bait every time. I mean, that was my childhood. And much of my adulthood is that, you know, somebody says something that's, you know, sounds a little offensive. Guess who gets offended? Me. Right. I rise to the occasion. I think about in fellowships how a lot of Christians are very temperamental, hypersensitive. I mean, how many fellowships have I seen where somebody gets offended at either a real or a perceived slight and they get up and stomp out of fellowship never to return again? I mean, it's incredible how many times I've seen this. Christians tossing aside friendships of years because they got their panties in a bundle about something. And, you know, I'll just make the point here that there is a time for righteous indignation, right? Moral indignation. And then there is there's people making mountains out of molehills. And I think we need to be able to tell the difference. That's what a mature Christian is able to do. Go to Colossians real quick. Colossians chapter three and look at verse 12. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with what? Anger? Indignation? No. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You talk about a coping mechanism? How about that? There's a coping mechanism. I recognize all that the Lord has forgiven me for. Rather than being easily provoked, quick to take offense, I'm rather quick to forgive, quick to extend mercy and grace to somebody, right? And like I said, I don't have all this worked out, but I'm doing my best. And uh, and that's all God can ask, right? Verse 14, and over all these virtues, do what? Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You know, folks, what we have going on here is a family. And families do have their issues, don't they? And that's kind of natural. But at the end of the day, we are brothers and sisters. So this idea of people getting up and stomping out, never to come back again, mm -mm, that is just not right. And I don't care what your justification is. If you don't have the commitment to stay and work things out, you're not worthy of this fellowship. And that's just the way it is. We have to be bigger souled people. We have to love each other with an intense, hot, burning love. And when we do have issues, we bring it to one another with humility. We don't wag our fingers, right? And when somebody brings something to us, we listen to them and we do our best 
to keep from taking offense at every word that they say. Go to Romans chapter 14, Romans 14. It says in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved of men. I think that verse is just one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. What is the fellowship all about? People running around demonstrating virtue signaling on how righteous they are and wagging their finger at everybody? No, 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 no. If you are not actively ministering this whole idea of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, you've missed the boat. You've missed the boat. We have to learn how to extend to one another the benefit of the doubt, not be so quick to think the absolute worst about people. You know, I was thinking about it. You know, the Bible refers to the love of Christ. Why is it called the love of Christ? Because it's the same love that Christ had when he went to the cross. You think about that. You think about the injustice of it all. Let's go and look at that real quick. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Look in verse 1. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, are you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Why? Because that's just not typical human response, is it? Human response is, I didn't do any of that. (laughs) And Jesus was quiet. Why? Because he was on a mission. Verse 6, now it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. See, they had issues back then, too. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he, he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him? But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. That's interesting. He was a murderer. He sure was. Isn't that interesting? And so you hear the you have a righteous man standing next to just a hardcore criminal and sinner. And what were the priests doing? Stirring up the crowd. We've seen a little bit of that. Verse 13, crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the place that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. How unjust was this? How offensive was this to Jesus? Think about how tempted he must have been to try to justify himself, right? I mean, can you imagine 
what he must have thought. Here I am dying for these people who are yelling for my death. Go to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 19. It says, for it is commendable if a man bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. God, right? So here Jesus is. He's being flogged. He's being beaten. He's being insulted. And what did he do? He kept his mouth closed and he committed himself to God. He said, God, I give you this whole situation. So do you see how how unlike that is to how we are taught from birth to respond to offense? We're taught from children that the proper way to respond to a offense is to retaliate. But that's not who we are anymore. Go to first Peter chapter three and look at verse eight. It says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Isn't that something? It's not about retaliation. It's not about payback. Verse 10, for whosoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. In the King James, it uses the word guile, guile, saying things in guile. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why do you commit yourself to him that judges righteously? Because God takes care of it, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. That's the promise. If somebody insults you, you are a messenger for Christ. You can't take it personally. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. There is a coping coping mechanism that you set Christ apart in your heart, that you are his and he is yours, that you have a job to do here, and that when people hurl insults at you and say things defamatory towards you, you deal with it. No need to retaliate. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. See, that's the point here. We're witnesses of Christ. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. There's that whole thing about heaping the coals on their heads. They're slandering you and you're being kind to them. 
you're speaking respectfully, they're speaking disrespectfully. Isn't that something? You're a light and they are darkness. Verse 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And that's the whole point here. That's our mission, to bring people to God. That's our job. And we're going to finish up here, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Look in verse 165. 165. It says, Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Or in other words, nothing can offend them. Isn't that awesome? So anyway, that's what I wanted to share today. Let me go ahead and close out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word. Father, we thank you for the blessings. We thank you, Father, that this is so contrary to this dark world. And Father, just the fact that it is uh, so so distinctly different, Father, we just know it's from you. We know that you've called us to a walk of peace, being peacemakers. That Father, that we speak truth in the face of lies, that we speak in love in the, the face of hostility and rancor. That, Father, that we are humble when faced with pride and contempt. Father, thank you for giving us that strength through your Holy Spirit to be these men and women and to do these things that you called us to do and rescue us from the strife of tongues in this world. We thank you for these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Your name, your rule.